0: Welcome back to Supreme Myths. This is my first uh, podcast since the what I called the term from hell. Um, we are going to be around over the summer, maybe not as frequently as we've been around um, before that. Uh, my very special guest today uh, is David Cohen, a professor of law at Drexel. He is a graduate of Dartmouth College, Columbia Law School. He clerked for the New Jersey Supreme Court. He clerked for the Ninth Circuit. Out of law school, he began working for the Women's Law Project of Philly before he went into academia. And I just want to say one more thing in this introduction. I know of no person, male, female, non-binary, any gender, um, who has been a more strong advocate uh, of women's rights and reproductive rights than Professor David Cohen. People who follow this podcast know that I have a lot of people on this podcast with whom I disagree with on a regular basis. Um, but occasionally, I also have people I agree with. Um, and David is uh, leaving aside the validity of Roe of and Casey in terms of fighting for women's rights. David is a hero of mine. And David, I'm so thankful that you're here. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I'm Happy
0: to be on this podcast. Um, So, two very broad opening questions, and then we're going to spend time on abortion. I do want to plug a forthcoming article you've written, along with Greer Donnelly and Rachel Reboucher, called The New Abortion uh, Battleground. It's coming out in Columbia Law Review. It is the first piece, I think, that comprehensively assesses many of the uncertainties going forward. And congrats on that piece. And we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But first... Um, you've been a progressive fighting progressive causes as long as I've been aware of you, um, which is a long time. How did this term as a whole affect you? Um, how did you feel that last week from hell, as I called it, or week and a half from hell? Um, just what were your general feelings?
1: I mean, it it was a real interesting mix that I'm sure all of us felt because on the one hand, no one could be surprised, um, given the justices on the court right now, given the three new additions from Trump, um, they were put on the court for a reason and they followed through. Um, They have done exactly what their nominators, their confirmers, their supporters wanted them to do. Um, We saw a leaked draft of Dobbs in May, so we couldn't be surprised what it did in the end of June. So on the one hand, not surprised, but on the other hand, really, really, Uh, devastating for a lot of things that progressives care about, whether it's gun control, administrative regulations generally, let alone the environment, um, criminal justice reform, um, and in particular, what I'm here to talk about, uh, reproductive rights and abortion rights. The the justices did not take half measures. They went all in for the issues that are at the core of the conservative legal movement, um, and they delivered. Um and so for progressives this is it's devastating.
0: Yeah. Um and there's also a Native American case that's very complicated, but which the court did not, you know, and, and religion as well, of course. Um
1: Yeah, absolutely. Right. The list the list is almost I mean, it's everything on the checklist for the Federalist Society, for the conservative legal movement, they delivered.
0: Yeah, and I will say I, I'm I'm a I was actually surprised I predicted Dobbs, but I was actually surprised how far they went in the gun case, because I didn't think they would do all of this so soon. <laughs> um, they no longer read the headlines, I think. They used to read the headlines. I don't think they care anymore. That's my assessment.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's pretty clear they don't care. And you know, it's, I think they, they seem to have internalized the idea that anything could happen to a court majority at any time. And so they've got to do this now because you know we're, we're all, we all inhabit bodies, bodies fail life takes weird turns. So next year, the court majority may be different. Um, So they're doing what they can right now.
0: Which, of course, I'm going to say this without answering it or discussing it, shows that we always have to wrestle with Posner's quote. This is my podcast. I mentioned Posner once a podcast. If changing judges changes law, do we really know what law is? Uh, That quote applies to this term more than any term in my lifetime. I think um, one more general question before we get to real nuts and bolts stuff about Dobbs abortion and the way forward. Uh, I'm curious about your personal story. How 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 did you get involved in feminist causes? You were calling yourself a feminist, I think, long before many men felt comfortable. I think I'm a feminist. Um, many men say that now, but I think you were saying it long before many men did. What's your personal story uh, road to that?
1: Um, so I I think of it as a coming from a different, a few different directions. One, my dad's an OBGYN who has been, you know, devoted to women's health his whole life. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we don't agree on a lot of other politics, but on women's health, um, that was sort of, you know, dinner table conversation growing up. Um, But I didn't really sort of put it together and what that means for activism and for my career until college. I was a philosophy major and took courses in women's philosophy of feminism, women's studies. And it was really reading the, that material. I remember reading um, Bowers v. Hardwick in 1991. And I was like, this case must have been from decades ago. And it was really from five years prior, right? And so realizing that there were major things that still needed to be fixed around gender and sex discrimination. Um, it was college, it was my awakening. I was very fortunate to learn from some excellent feminist law professors in, in law school. And then get a fellowship out of my clerkships with the Women's Law Project, working on these issues and representing abortion clinics. Um, and so, really, from doing that work, it solidified. I, I, I always talk. I'm one of the rare people who was able to go into law school wanting to do something, and then come out of law school doing exactly what I went to law school for. Um, so I was doing this work, and it's really been at you know at the heart of my professional life for now two decades.
0: That's excellent. I have to go back to one thing you said, which almost gave me a heart attack. Did you say you were in college when in, in 1991 when you read Bowers?
1: Yeah, so I was college from 90 to 94. You're killing me, I David. Believe- You're killing me, David. I started
0: teaching in 1991. Okay, well. <laughs> and by the way, just um, one more thing about that. Uh, Bowers versus hard work for the non-lawyers listening to right. this is the case where the Supreme Court first held that consensual S- uh, Same-sex sodomy or sex in the privacy of one's home could be criminalized by the state. It's a 1986 case. Um, right. I was clerking for the Northern District of Georgia when that case was in the Northern District of Georgia, and oh, wow. I've told and I've told the story on this pod before. But indulge me for a minute. Uh, sure. uh, a progressive law. A profess- I was friends with another law clerk. She was clerking for the judge who had the case, and it was a very progressive judge by Georgia standards in 1983 or four. When when it was going on in the lower courts, she came into my cubby. I came into my my office next to my judge, and she was crying big tears. And I said, "What's the matter?" And she said, "We had this case called Bowers versus Hardwick, and my judge is going to punt. He's going to say a Supreme Court ruling from 25 years ago says we have to just punt this, and and we're bound by it. It was a summary affirmance of a case. That that was Bowers versus Hardwick. No discovery, nothing. Goes to the Eleventh Circuit. They reverse." Supreme Court then reverses the 11th Circuit and makes the factual finding that there's a rational basis to this law, there was never, ever, any evidence or discovery in the case in the lower court. That's a, tr- a different kind of tragedy. But anyway, um, I'm just feeling very old right now. Okay, enough of that. Um, my my road to feminism, by the way, also began in my home with my mother having women's consciousness raising meetings in 1971 when I was 13. And I sat in on some of those and and that's that was my road to how I got here. (laughs) Um, Okay, All right. So um, let's start by first really quickly, just for the non-lawyers out there. Summarize exactly what Dobbs held and what it reversed.
1: So Dobbs explicitly said we are overturning Roe and Casey. Roe was the 1973 case that held there was a right to abortion under the Constitution's 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause. Planned Parenthood v. Casey was a 1992 case, out of where I'm sitting right now, Philadelphia, (laughs) Pennsylvania, um, that upheld parts of Roe, but changed the standard for analyzing an abortion restriction, It It gave a little more leeway to the states to burden abortion as long as it's not too much, but said at the heart, states cannot ban abortion before viability, and viability is around 23, 24 weeks, so, Mississippi passed a law that banned abortion at 15 weeks, which everyone agreed was months before viability. So, if Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey were still good law, then the Mississippi law would have to be found unconstitutional. And that's exactly what the lower courts, some of the most conservative lower courts in the country, said. And so the Supreme Court reversed that. So, technically, all the court did was say Mississippi's 15-week law was okay, was constitutional, but in doing so, it eliminated the right to abortion um, that had been since 1973. And many
0: of us thought that Justice Roberts was going to be able to maybe get one other vote uh, to uphold the Mississippi law on the grounds that 95% of abortions occur before 15 weeks Therefore, a 15-week ban was not an undue burden on women, except maybe if their life was in in danger. Um, And that would be a kind of a a compromise. And there are a lot of European countries that have similar type of compromises, at least on the ground, uh, to that kind of scheme, where first trimester abortions would be fully protected, pretty much, and then after that, states could regulate. That's obviously not what happened. Um, Did you think there was a chance that was going to happen?
1: I thought going into maybe the start of their term. I thought maybe that might happen. But when I saw what the justices did with the Texas SB8 law, this is the bounty hunter law that allows uh, anyone in the world to sue for a post six-week abortion in Texas, when the justices basically said, we don't care about that law. Um, And then at oral argument, in Dobbs when it was pretty clear that Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett had really extreme views on the issue. I still held out a little bit of hope just because I wanted to have some hope that Chief Justice Roberts could convince someone, but I thought it was pretty clear after what happened with Texas and oral argument that he was alone. And it's really interesting, you know, as court observers, which I know you are and I am, to see a Chief Justice who is so irrelevant right now to the outcome in cases, because he's got five justices to his right that don't care about whether the chief justice is part of the majority or not. Um, And he, you know, Dobbs, you know, he wrote the opinion that he wrote a separate opinion that you were describing. um, But it's really irrelevant. I mean, you know, are casebooks going to even put any excerpt of that opinion into history? Probably not. It's just going to fall by the wayside.
0: So so one more, one more pre-thing before we get into the chaos that's about to ensue. Um, I'm no fan of Justice Roberts. I published an article in George Washington saying that his calling card is really hubris, not institutionalism. Um, and I also want to say in that vein, what's most interesting about him is that it, it's really never been the Roberts court except for about a year and a half because he had no power when he took the court. Justice Kennedy had all the power. And and now, now Kennedy was willing to compromise, which he did, I think. from example, in Heller, we know that Kennedy made Scalia put in that big paragraph about when gun regulations are allowed. Otherwise, they weren't going to get Kennedy's vote. Kennedy was interested. And of course, Kennedy was great by, from a progressive perspective on gay rights and okay on abortion. Um, but that was the Kennedy court, not the Roberts court. And now it's the five to his right. He's really never had that much power, which is interesting and I think is kind of karma for him because he got the job he always wanted. He's not really, the, and he is the chief justice on paper, but he's never had the power. Do you agree with that?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think that's right. I mean, Kennedy had the four liberals that he would join every now and then. And I think, you know, Chief Justice Roberts has a couple cases, particularly the Obamacare cases that people point to, well, he was the deciding vote. He was the one who switched. But you're right, you know, maybe from the period from Kennedy to Barrett, Kennedy's retirement to Barrett, Chief Justice Roberts sort of sat in the middle and might have controlled things. Um, But it's hard to see how he's going to have much effect going forward um, with the with the five colleagues to the right of him.
0: And Kennedy to Barrett was either one term or two. It wasn't out of all. You know, he's been the chief justice since 2006. All right. Enough of that. Okay, so. I did criticize Planned Parenthood versus Casey when it changed the rule of law from Roe to this undue burden test on the grounds that I did agree with Scalia, not a sentence that comes from my lips very easily. <laughs> I, did, I did agree with Scalia that this was just, just going to let lower court judges basically impose their own preferences on burdens on abortion, not prohibitions, before, not, not prohibitions but burdens on abortion. But reading your new fantastic article, um, you have convinced me that the chaos that's about to ensue in the lower courts and then ultimately the Supreme Court is going to make the undue burden test look like a clear rule <laughs> compared to what we've seen. So let's start at a very high level of generality. What are the forms of chaos we're about to see uh, across the range of 50 states and, and the federal government, just in, in broad terms?
1: Yeah, I mean, so returning the issue of abortion to the states, which is really the essence of Justice Alito's opinion, Um, he says is going to make things simpler. Alabama will have one rule, New Jersey will have another, maybe Pennsylvania somewhere in the middle, and that everyone's going to be fine with the rules that they have. We just don't live in a country where people are so isolated that the only rule that matters is the rule of their home state. And so what my co-authors and I talk about is that people are going to travel to get abortions they live in a state where there's an abortion ban, they're going to travel. Or they're going to try to seek abortion pills online. And it's going to create all these interjurisdictional issues of can states ban travel? Can states try to enforce their criminal law extraterritorially? Can the federal government preempt state laws on issues like abortion? And so we're going to get, and there's a lot more, we're going to get all of these really deep-seated questions about state relationships with one another and the federal government's relationship with the states interwoven with the politics of abortion, which is going to create chaos, complication, indeterminacy in an area that I think Justice Alito and the majority thinks they've settled because they've just sent it back to the states. But what we're saying is this is so far from settled and opening up entire new problems around the relationships of jurisdictions to one another.
0: I, I That's great. I think that's exactly right. Um, let's start with the one that most people are talking about. So uh, Texas passes a law that says no abortions in this state, and it is illegal to leave this state to get an abortion in a state where abortion is legal. H- how do we even begin analyzing that?
1: So I think we begin with our basic assumption of how we, you know, act as Americans um, and then try and think where that's captured in the Constitution. Because people think, okay, I'm driving from I'm in Pennsylvania. I'm going to drive down to see you in Georgia. I'm going to pass through many states as I drive from Pennsylvania to Georgia. Um, As long as I'm following the law in those states. I am doing what I'm supposed to do as a law-abiding citizen. That is what people think. And we've been thinking this way, you know, think of uh, gambling, right? When people, when gambling wasn't so prevalent everywhere, people would go to Las Vegas or Atlantic City to gamble and not worry about their home state's laws, fireworks, marijuana, lots of other things where we have different laws. Um, But what the problem with that understanding of how the world works is that it's not reflected in any clear case law because we really haven't had many instances with legislatures and aggressive prosecutors trying to impose their law beyond their borders, um, except for isolated cases. And because of that, we don't have precedent from the Supreme Court or the lower courts that really clearly says that you have a right to travel as long as you are following the laws of the states where you travel. And so it raises questions of due process and liberty. You know, what is considered liberty under the due process clause? It raises questions about dormant commerce clause, which is the doctrine that says states can't restrict interstate commerce, raises questions about national citizenship. What does it mean to be a citizen of the United States Um, and privileges or immunities in terms of what states have to guarantee or what states have to recognize from one state? And all of these doctrines are underdeveloped in this area in terms of going to a state and following the law and whether your home state can make its law follow you.
0: I just want to say, even if they were not underdeveloped, and they are, the Supreme Court doesn't care anyway about precedent. We I we not just this term, but since about eighteen fifty seven. So we know all about this, so um we would be but, but at least we'd have a little more information. Um let me start with a K, with a hypo I think you, you, you put in your article that I think is very troubling. I, I I by the way, I don't know if I have clear answers to many of these clear preferences as to many of these questions other than I want women have the right to an abortion in all 50 states, but I'm not going to win that. Um, I would pass a constitutional amendment to do that, but I'm not going to win that either. Um, so Georgia, let's assume Georgia says that killing a fetus, that's the wrong word, retract that, that um, having an abortion with a f- after six weeks is in fact murder. Let's say Georgia says that's murder. And I think Dobbs allows Georgia to do that. Now, Someone from Georgia goes to um, a state where abortion is completely legal, New York, let's say, and aborts a 10-week-old fetus. And and this is why this is, I think, the hardest case. And Georgia says, you've just murdered a Georgia citizen. I, I'm pretty sure Georgia – now, the typical case would be Georgia could clearly pass a law. You can't murder a Georgia citizen elsewhere, I think if it's illegal to murder that person in the state that you're murdering the person in. But in New York, it's not murder to have a seven week abort. uh, uh, What do we do with that?
1: So there's two things that really come up. One does current criminal law allow that putting aside any special law that's been enacted? And then two, can the state pass a new criminal law that covers this out of state action on the first about currently existing law? Every state has, a criminal law jurisdiction statute that says what is required for this state to have jurisdiction. And you might think the answer to that is, well, if it happens within our state borders, then we have jurisdiction. It's not that simple because every crime has multiple elements. So some states, all that's required is one element of the crime to happen within the borders. And so that can be the development of the mens rea. And then and the rest of it happens somewhere else. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Dave, just
0: for men, by men's rare, you mean criminal intent for those numbers. Right. Yeah. So okay. that
1: so if you develop the criminal intent in the state, that's enough to give the state a hook to prosecute you, even if the rest of the crime takes place elsewhere. Some states also have a broad effects doctrine. Based pa- pa- Dave, I'm sorry to interrupt. Saying, I'm,
0: so, I'm sorry to pause on that last thing. Yeah. I want to make that crystal clear for those listening. Obviously, if I'm planning to rob a bank in Colorado and I live in Texas and I buy the equipment for that bank robbery in Texas, but I actually robbed a bank in Colorado, I think all of us would agree Texas could prosecute me for either attempted or actual bank robbery, right?
1: Um, I think that... It would. I don't know if everyone would. Well, I don't know how people would feel about it, okay. but I don't know. It would I would have to look at the criminal jurisdiction statute of the different states. I mean, it would like, be
0: constitutional. I mean, it would be constitutional. Yes, no, right. That's
1: constitutional. I think it would be constitutional.
0: OK, I'm sorry. Um, to interrupt.
1: That's the problem with this. So the difference is that right, abortion is legal in New York as opposed to bank right. robbery is yes. still illegal yes. in Colorado. And that's yes. where the rub is. And so there's a couple other ways that Georgia might exert jurisdiction. They could say that the effect of the crime is so serious in Georgia, because you have deprived Georgia of the benefits of a citizen of Georgia. And so we can prosecute because we have an effect in Georgia. And then other states have a criminal conspiracy statute that says it is irrelevant whether the crime is a crime in another state. So Alabama is the example for this. Alabama says, if the conspiracy began in Alabama, it doesn't matter if the crime is also a crime in the other state. It is still conspiracy to commit a crime in Alabama. So there are currently on the books possibilities for extending jurisdiction outside of the state. And then the second option is just the legislature passes a new law to say that our, you know, it is illegal to travel out of state to get an abortion, like you hypothesized. And there are several national anti-abortion groups who say this is going to be a major priority next legislative session um, people, to pass and, such laws.
0: And when you say that, I want people to focus on it because m- what are called trap laws, which were the laws that were trying to burden abortion clinics during the undue burden regime of Casey, um, there, were, there, there were uniform laws that were sent to red states that were basically the same. Same is true for education and vouchers. Uh, I, don't want, I, want, I want people to really understand there are national organizations who send Draft legislation to legislatures and 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 they and they don't do their own work. They basically adopt this draft legislation. Probably is true on both sides, to be honest, as my guess. Um, and and that's a weird way of running a country, I think.
1: <laughs> yeah, and um, I mean, one of them is the National Right to Life Committee, and they've already put out their draft anti-abortion bill. And the only restriction on travel that version has is for minors. It is illegal to take a minor to another state to get an abortion. But the general counsel for that organization, James Bopp, who's been an anti-abortion activist for a long time, and he's also litigated campaign finance cases before the Supreme Court. um, He's a really decades-long right-wing legal activist.
0: I call him a decades-long nightmare. Go ahead.
1: (laughs) I'll agree with that. He (laughs) said that other forms of Travel restrictions is just ridiculous scaremongering by people like me. Um, So he at least seems to not be in favor of other abortion travel restrictions, but there are plenty of other organizations that are, and they are out there talking about this. Students for Life, which is the National Organization of Students who are anti abortion, they say that it should be a priority. And there are legislators in various states who said, uh, including Texas and Missouri, who said that when our sessions come back, this is going to be a priority because we need to stop people from traveling. So, David, I, um, here,
0: here's a, a thesis that you can react to, um, and um, of course, it, 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 it stems from my—it stems, not phlegms, it stems from I'm a little rusty. It stems three weeks in Canada would do that to a person. It stems um, from my legal realism. I don't know the hook. I don't know the doctrine. I don't know the rule but as a matter of instinct as a matter of teaching constitutional law and writing about it for 31 years practicing it for 5 before that um my gut tells me that there will be a strong resistance to the idea for example of um you know of of states being able to legislate for other states and the best example i can think of is guns there is still room even after the horrible new york rifle case this term um for gun laws the the court did say for example in sensitive places guns can still be banned um whatever whatever remains for gun laws it seems unlikely that courts are going to allow gun laws that um pe- people to avoid people to be prosecuted for gun possession in states where the home state would call it illegal and the other state would say it's legal. Um, I think that's unlikely as a matter of intuition. It doesn't feel like that's a doable patchwork of state laws. But that's just my gut. Do you have a gut?
1: I think that there are so many complicated permutations that it is hard to say an absolute answer here. Sure. Because I think your, the scenario you're talking about, I think informed Justice Kavanaugh's concurring opinion, where he said he thinks that there is a right to travel for um, patients to get care out of state. And so, and he was responding to the dissent that was actually talking about all these complicated things. Actually, they cited our article. Um, and so he was responding to that. And he said, without citation, that there is a right to travel. Because I think you're into is right that people think the person going out of state to get the care cannot be criminalized but what about the person who drives them what about the person who funds them what about the person who schedules the 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 abortion with a phone call from illinois to missouri um or the provider so i think there and then let alone when you start talking about medication abortion medication abortion is a 2 set of two pills that are taken 24 hours apart. So if someone takes the first pill in say Illinois and then goes home to Missouri and takes the second set of pills where abortion is banned, can they be prosecuted or can the provider be prosecuted for performing an abortion in Missouri? I think there's so many permutations that are going to make the complications even more severe that I think your basic intuition is probably right that there's not five votes to say you can't travel to get care. But on these other things, I think there's, it could be come out differently. So let's
0: talk about telehealth for a second, and then we'll move eventually to the federal government. Um, so I have several elderly friends in their 70s and 80s who are conservative, really conservative, and whose wives are conservative. But they've always been pro-choice. I mean, they're conservative across the board, except for this issue. And almost without exception, their answer as to why is they were alive in the 1960s when friends of theirs or friends of friends or relatives or someone in the community died because of a back alley alley abortion. And that was clearly a serious health crisis in America prior to Roe. Does telehealth make that scenario a little bit less painful to think about? That's one question. Second question,
1: isn't telehealth going to make all of this even 10 times more complicated? So to answer your second question, absolutely. The first, and I'll explain more, but on your first point, um, it's not exactly telehealth that will change things, but it's abortion pills, which are often delivered by telehealth and not always, though, um, because there are, are much safer ways to have an abortion outside the legal system now than there were before Roe. Before Roe, someone who wanted an abortion in a state where it's illegal needed to find a healthcare provider who may or may not have been a doctor or even medically trained in any other field. Um, and some of the doctors were excellent, compassionate, careful physicians who provided wonderful care, but some of them were not. And some of them were not even medically trained and those people inflicted a lot of pain and hurt on people including death as you were talking about your friends um we're not going to see the same thing now because abortion pills i know abortion pills are widely accessible online um and they are safe they are effective they have very low complication rates and so people who are going to seek them out are going to be able to safely terminate their own pregnancy. Um, the problem is not everyone knows about them. And so people are still going to try other means. Um, and that if they're only effective through about 10 or 11 weeks of pregnancy. So people might try to do other things afterwards. So we still are going to see some devastating effects of people unable to access legal abortion, but not the same as pre roe I think the more... Uh, the more pressure the more applicable thing now, is that we have data from excellent public health studies about the impact on people's lives for carrying their pregnancies to term against their wishes. Um, there's an excellent study by a group out at University of California, San Francisco called the Turnaway Study, and they looked at the effects of being denied an abortion on all different aspects of people's lives. And what they found is that people are more likely to die in childbirth because childbirth is riskier than abortion. Their physical health is greater impairment from having a pregnancy they didn't want. Their mental health is worse. They're more likely to stay with an abusive partner. Their already existing children are worse off in health and their career and education aspirations go down because they no longer are able to fulfill them. And so we're going to see people carrying to term who didn't want to and all of the negative effects that come with that.
0: Famously, I th- I think this is right. If I'm wrong, I'm sure I'll hear about it. I think Oprah Winfrey has said that she would never have received, had never the career she had if she had not been able to get an abortion. I think she said that.
1: Yeah, there are a lot of people, both, you know, women and men whose lives would be totally different if abortion were not accessible because, uh, you know, the people who are pregnant had to give birth and raise kids and that derails certain parts of their lives. Um, and for their partner... Um, now they're a father who, you know, might not have been until later in their life and that can derail their life too. Um, So I'm a father of two kids, two teenagers. I know you're the father of two or three kids,
0: three, three kids right now, two teenagers, uh, two, two girls and a gender non-binary.
1: Great. And I love being a parent. um, And I see pictures you post with your family. um, But it was because I wanted this. Right. Um, and I wanted it, and we were able to do it when we thought it was right for ourselves, for our family. Um, and so that's very different than when people are not able to do that.
0: So I want to veer away. I, everyone who listens to this podcast knows, <clears throat> I've said this before. <clears throat> excuse me. Sorry. I, I, I sent a rough roadmap of issues to discuss with whoever my guest is, and then we veer away sometimes. I want to veer for a minute. <clears throat> you know, do you think America, even Alabama— even Missouri, Texas, are we? Are people going to have the stomach to put either women or – forget Planned Parenthood for a second. But right. women or doctors actually in jail with long sentences <coughs> for having abortions. I, I know that's already happened even in the but, – but, but it's pretty, pretty rare in America.
1: Yeah. If that becomes common, do you really think we had the stomach for that? I don't know. And I do wonder about the actual criminal enforcement, which I think is why the Texas SB8 law, the bounty hunter law is so important right. here. Um, because, I, you know, we saw this before Roe, that it was really hard to prosecute legitimate doctors for abortion care before Roe, because they were respected members of their community. They cared for people for non-abortion things. So people knew them. Um, and a lot of people got abortions from them. So it was really hard to prosecute or get, it was really hard to get a conviction of legitimate medical care professionals before Roe. We certainly live in different times now, and there's certainly a, I think, fervor, anti-abortion fervor that uh, runs deeper. And we might see some people who really do want to put people in jail, but can you get a jury of 12 to do that? Um, Even in the most conservative parts of the country, I don't know. But the risk is going to be there and that's going to chill people, even if they think they might not get convicted Um, because the risk, you know, in some States it's considered murder and it'd be 99 years in jail or life in jail. Um, And so even if a doctor thinks, well, I'm not sure I would be convicted, it's still a serious risk to take on.
0: Oh, hundred percent. Yeah.
1: And so, but I do think that the the bounty hunter laws um, like Texas's SB8, sort of fill the gap there, because if prosecutors might not be able to convict and get someone to go to jail for decades for health care, the threat of being sued for endless amounts of money um, by anyone in the world for every single abortion, um, that is a really scary threat to people's livelihood um, and licenses. And so that those could chill abortion practice in a way that I think is maybe more effective than the risk of going to jail.
0: Fair enough. No, I think that's I think that's right. Um, going back to the right to travel for a minute before we turn to the feds' involvement in all this, um, you know, I've been very public about my statement that the Supreme Court does not now and never has cared about constitutional text in any meaningful way. I have shown that through many examples, some that I like. <clears throat> There's a federal equal protection clause. The court applies equal protection principles to the federal government. There is no federal equal protection clause, folks. It's not in the Constitution. The court made it up. But I like, I like it. I like the result, but it's, it's made up. And, of course, the First Amendment refers to Congress, yet it applies to the president. There's no way to make that move without ignoring text. I could go on, 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 and on. Justice Kavanaugh's reference to the—which makes Justice Alito's majority opinion so frustrating because he keeps saying it's not in the text— But the Supreme Court does things not in the text all the time, as everybody knows. But leaving that aside, where does this right to travel come from? And is it strong enough, do you think, to damper the state's ability to uh, make abortions outside their own states criminal in their own states?
1: Yeah, well, there's um, Justice Kavanaugh mentioning the right to travel did so without any citation. And there's really multiple different foundations for the right to travel, all of them you are completely correct about. No matter what clause of the Constitution you read, <laughs> you're not going to find a right to travel. So the irony with Justice Kavanaugh talking about the right to travel is he just signed on to an opinion that said, if it's not in the Constitution, we need to find historical evidence that it should be in the Constitution. At the time, it was you know, dating back hundreds of years, um, or it's not a constitutional right. And yet here he is talking about the right to travel, which is subject to the same criticism. because. It's a great point,
0: David. It's a great point. Go ahead. Sorry.
1: Yeah. I mean, the right to travel, some cases root it in the due process clause, the same clause that Dobbs really said has very little substantive role. Right. Um, some cases root it in the 14th Amendment's privileges or immunities clause, which is very undeveloped. Um, Justice Thomas really likes it for some rights, but not others. And he doesn't really tell us which ones. Um, (laughs) Well, hold on. He does.
0: He likes it for guns, but not abortion. We know that.
1: Yeah, exactly. Other (laughs) than the rights that correspond with the Federalist Society's goals. Um, And then some other cases talk about as an equal protection principle, this idea that you have to be treated equally no matter where you are. Um, All of them are in different factual scenarios than what we're describing here all of them based in something that's not in the text and so justice kavanaugh's reference to the right to travel is ambiguous and really called into question by the majority opinion he just signed so i have no confidence in his one i mean look i'm happy he wrote that because it's better than no one mentioning it right um but do i have any faith that even he would follow that sentence in a future case no none whatsoever let alone any of the other justices
0: and and if they did, which you and I both want as a policy matter, I think if they if they did, I want to be clear that as Professor Christopher Sprigman once tweeted, Chris is at NYU and has been on this podcast. Chris uh, is not a con law guy originally; he's a IP guy and other things. Brilliant guy. He once tweeted that he can't. He he was teaching con law for a while and decided he couldn't anymore because he was tired of teaching something that is just all made up, that there's no law. And then I wrote a blog post about that, giving about 30 examples of how it's all made up. If the court does find a right to travel to trump the ability of states to make abortion illegal in other states where it's legal, I don't want that result, but let's be clear. It would just be made up like everything else about constitutional law.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I mean, it would be rooted in the justice's understanding of what is right. What is the correct understanding of what it means to be in a country with 50 different jurisdictions, but national citizenship. Um, but you're right. It's not detailed in the text. It would be their sort of understanding, which I think is our correct understanding. It is the correct understanding as a matter of what people, how people act in this country and have probably acted for centuries. Um, but it would be, be rooted in their own sense of what's right for this country.
0: So one last comment about the right to travel, and then we'll get to the federal government. <clears throat> and I just had this insight talking to you. So this is how brilliant you are, because you just sparked this insight in me. I think the argument for litigators and the pro-choice community going forward is kind of a a, um, a payback argument, given the arguments the right-to-life movement has made or the anti-choice movement has made over the years. New York, in my opinion has the authority to protect the women of its state. And everybody, even if you think abortion is murder, and even if you think the fetus should be protected, I don't think any reasonable person would deny the burdens on women that are... New York has a valid interest in protecting all of the things that Roe and Casey talked about that burdened women. Nothing in Dobbs, I think, undermines the idea that states have the right to at least take care of women that way if they want to. In fact, Dobb says that. Dobb says states can do that if they want to. So I think the argument is we have a right to protect our women, and and we have the right to, to, to protect our citizens, and therefore you can't make something that hurts women, you can't prosecute them for things that are legal in this state elsewhere because we have a compelling interest in protecting women families and the children and men in those families. How's that for an argument?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that gets to the heart of it, which is that every state, whether it's a pro-choice state or anti-abortion state, has an interest in what happens in their borders. And you've, we've already seen four states, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey and Delaware, pr- pass laws basically saying we are not going to cooperate with the out, any out-of-state investigation because what happens in our state is legal in our state and we are not going to let any other state tell us what to do in our state, or what providers in our state can't do, and so it does get to this basic notion of states' rights, which is you know was at the heart of some of the anti-abortion movements. Just uh, print, you know. At least oh, was, David,
0: excuse me, it was all of it beginning in 1980. I mean, that was the origins of it,
1: right? But I think it was really rooted. They wanted a national abortion ban, yes. but they had to yes. speak in terms of federalism. Yes. Um, but yes, you're right. Turning it on the head, saying if you believe in federalism, then let New York and people in New York do what New York says is okay, and they won't change what Alabama says right. is not allowed in Alabama.
0: Well, especially on an issue, A, that reasonable people disagree about, and B, the harm to the woman. When you rob a bank, there isn't that much, you know, there, there isn't, there isn't um, harm to the bank robber. <laughs> But when you have an, when you are forced to carry a fetus to term, I think everybody agrees there yeah. is harm to the woman. It's just that people think the right of the fetus outweighs that. That's a, that's an odd type of crime. There aren't many. Yeah. I mean, maybe, you know, John Valjean stealing a loaf of bread to feed his family <laughs> is an example of that. But there aren't many examples of that in our criminal law, I don't think. Um,
1: yeah. and And I just want to just clarify one thing, which is that there is this sort of... picture out there this romanticized version of pregnancy that pregnancy is this nine months of sort of joy and glee and birth happens takes a few hours a little bit of pain and then you're happy because you have a baby Um, certainly some people experience that but a lot of people pregnancy raises a lot of health conditions a lot of mental health conditions can become very complicated and very dangerous for people. We have a very high maternal mortality rate in this country, much higher for black women and other women of color than almost anywhere else in the world or industrialized world. And um, it's risky. Pregnancy is risky and difficult. And even in the month time after birth, because maternal mortality numbers are calculated for the year after birth. So it's risky for the year following birth. Um, So it's, it's not, you're basically t- forcing people to undergo nine months and then several t- months later that are dangerous in every way.
0: Th- that's a great point. Um, and I want to get personal about it for a minute. I know my wife would not mind. And I, I, sh- I, should, I should have disclosed at the beginning, by the way. My bad, everybody. My, I, my wife was board chair of Planned Parenthood Southeast for, for a year. And so you know, we're a family committed to pro-choice um, activities. Um, the, the labor of my middle child was 40 hours long. And my wife and I really wanted this child. Most importantly, my wife really wanted this child and was able to fight through a lot of things. If I can't even, I'm being emotional here, the horror of my wife going through that and not wanting to bring the child into the world is more than I can bear, to be honest. I can't even imagine that situation.
1: Yeah. And so I think this is important because I think people don't really talk about these things much. And probably men don't talk about these things even more. Um, You know, similar story, but different facts with my first child. Um, My wife had a 38 weeks of very easy pregnancy. Um, And then in that 38th week, she developed incredibly high blood pressure and protein Uh. levels. She had preeclampsia, which can be deadly. Um, And we had she had to have an emergency operation to uh, deliver our child. Everyone's fine. Everyone was totally fine, but it was really scary. It was incredibly dangerous. Um, and like you said, this was for a wanted child that we really wanted to be a part of our family to force people to go through that and risk their lives. I mean, she was, her life was at risk. Um, and everyone's fine now, but to force someone to go through that against their will um, is really not a just system. Um, but I think on this point, people don't fully understand all the ways that pregnancy can can go wrong and how frequently it does go wrong. Um, And need to talk about it because I think that's an important way people can think about this issue that is not normally part of the conversation. Uh,
0: Agreed. hundred percent. Okay. And I'm glad your wife and child were okay. (laughs) Yours too. All right. So we don't have a lot of time left, but we do have enough time to talk about the federal government. Now, I want to begin by saying the odds of a new law passing, protecting abortion rights or even outlawing abortion rights across the country is inconceivable, I think, um, today. Is that a fair statement?
1: Yeah. I mean, with Joe Manchin and Kristin Sinema controlling the Senate and the Democratic agenda, we're not getting a law protecting abortion rights. And if the Republicans have control after this midterm election, I hope they don't. But if they do, um, Joe Biden would veto anything that right. bans abortion. So,
0: And even going forward, as long as the filibuster rule remains right. for, for laws in general, there won't be any abortion legislation. Um, I don't know. I think the Republicans might do away with the filibuster if they had both houses and a Republican president. Yeah, if I that, worry about that. And I worry about that too. If that happens, okay, partisan alert. Partisan alert. If that happens in twenty twenty four, our country is in such deep shit anyway. It's like, I mean, abortion is really important. There are going yeah. to be other important things. Yep. You know, so um so 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 but that really leads me to what I really want to talk about, which is a a democratic presidential administration, the current one, which is decidedly pro-choice, or maybe one in twenty twenty four. I don't care what the makeup of the Congress is, um, that wants to use executive power to help women secure safe and affordable abortions across the country. It's the first time I've said this publicly, but I do think that a small aspect of the court's horrendous anti-delegation principle jurisprudence that is coming out in the EPA case and that's been boiling for years is in part, and there's a lot of other things going on, But a part of that is to stop exactly what we're describing, a presidential administration with a, you know, passing a uh, pro-choice rules that the uh, right is going to argue, forget abortion, violates the separation of powers. Do you think I'm right about that?
1: I think it is one of many issues that the justices are scared that a powerful president could use to, without the legislative process. Right. That being said, I don't think they would care about a powerful Republican president using the same <laughs> powers to advance Republican principles um, and goals. Agreed. But I think right now they are worried about Biden using the tools of the executive branch to advance protections around climate change, around immigration, and here around abortion. Um, but I still think the president should try. Because I think that the risk of doing nothing is greater than the risk that we're talking about with some of these uh, that I'll talk about with some of these options. And I think also that it is important to put out there that the executive branch is not going to stop trying things just because it fears the Supreme Court might disagree, because otherwise, you know, the, you've given up the fight before you've even started. Um, well, so, let me up
0: real quick. Uh, I would go further, and I would say you don't have to agree with this. I would go further. I would say not only should they try it, were the court to strike it down on anti-delegation principles. I wrote a blog post a few weeks ago, which was the start of a difficult conversation. I said, "I think the, I think the administration should ignore Congress, uh, ignore the court, and just do it anyway." That's my position.
1: Yeah, and I'm um, I would have to give it some more thought, but I'm close to that position too. Yeah. I think anything the executive branch can do to try and further these policies are A, justified by the health emergency that we're facing, and B, maybe cut the Supreme Court down a few notches in saying you are not the final arbiter of everything legal in this country. And that's a good lesson for everyone to understand.
0: I have to digress for 10 seconds. Is that a statement you would... I, I've always said that. That's been my career for 30 years. Most liberals would have recoiled at that up until maybe five years ago? If I had said that 15 years ago, what, what would you have said to me?
1: Um, I think that it is, um, I think it's tr- been true throughout history that the Supreme Court is, I mean, look, the Supreme Court says important things that we should, uh, that I think a lot of them should be followed, but that's because I agree with them. Um, and there's, but they, they don't carry things out on their own. You need the other political branches and the other political branches need to fight back. You know, this is one of the things that I think is one of the lessons, and I think you and I probably agree on this, of this past year, that people are taking away, that upsets me a little. People are saying, they're taking away, they're saying, this Supreme Court doesn't follow precedent. This Supreme Court is political. And every Supreme Court is political. Every Supreme Court doesn't follow precedent when it doesn't want to. I've been teaching my students that since the day I started teaching law and only when you realize that can you accurately understand how the court as an institution works and if people are coming around to it this term that's good but if their takeaway from this term is that this term is an is an aberration then I think that's the wrong takeaway uh, that's beautiful the
0: Sorry. problem
1: with this term is that they did it in a way that is so out so far right wing conservative principles that I disagree with it. But the court's been overturning precedent when it wants forever. And if the court were ever to get new justices that were progressive, I would be first in line, and I would hope everyone would be first in line, urging them to overturn Dobbs, Citizens United, Shelby County, Hobby Lobby, on and on and on. And not saying, well, we have to return to an institution that respects precedent.
0: The only thing I would add, well, everyone knows I agree with all of that. The only thing I would add that to that is, the road to get to that understanding is to recognize this is not a court we're dealing with. It is an institution that is different than a court of law. But I don't want to get bogged down on that, David. We don't have a lot of time left. <laughs> yes. If I, if I, if, if the FDA hired you tomorrow, and said, oh, the federal government hired you tomorrow and said, give us three things you think we ought to do, regardless what Supreme Court thinks, you know, we'll fight that battle later to help um, women secure safe and affordable abortions in this country in states that now make abortion legal? Three things that are realistic, what would you say?
1: Um, So I think the first would be that there are restrictions on abortion pills that go above and beyond what any medical evidence requires from them. It's a program called the REMS program. I don't ever remember exactly, but it (laughs) has to do with risk management. Right. And so there's a very small number of drugs that are regulated beyond normal drugs that get special restrictions. And abortion pills are in that category. There's no medical justification. The Biden administration in December relaxed the rules. So allowed mailing of abortion pills, but they can still relax them even more to make them more widely available. That would be one two. Um, that the FDA, along with the Justice Department, would vigorously attempt to preempt state laws that restrict abortion pills or even ban abortion entirely, because to ban these pills, which is the effect of an abortion ban, is to say that the federal government having determined that this, these pills are safe, effective, and the time and energy that, and money that went into getting a national market for them by these drug companies A state is gonna say, no, we don't want to participate in that national market. That goes against the Supremacy Clause and the preemption doctrine should be uh, attempted to pursue that. Um, And then three, um, and this isn't FDA, this is HHS, but the Health and Human Services Department, I think needs to vigorously enforce some laws that are on the books, including HIPAA, which protects private medical information so that patients who go to hospitals with some kind of complication are not reported to the police because of their pregnancy outcome. And then EMTALA, which is the law that protects people's right to get emergency care in hospitals. And sometimes emergency care is abortion care. And so states that ban abortion can't refuse to care for a patient who's in a medical emergency when they present to a hospital. And those two laws, um, HHS, to its credit, has given good guidance after Dobbs about those two laws, and it needs to enforce them. That,
0: that's great stuff, David. And you and I both agree, if the FDA does all of that, or even even under existing regulations, that the rules are going to be challenged not on substantive grounds, but on this delegation issue of, of, of and, and, and I don't want to get into that now, but but hopefully those rules can sustain such a challenge in this Supreme Court, I don't know. I want to end with one question, and this has been, I, I, I've learned so much from your article and so much from this conversation. Um, I wish we had more time to talk about the federal response, but we're about out of time. So I want to talk about something a little, well, incredibly serious, I think, um, that goes not just to abortion, but to the role of the Supreme Court in our country. So let's say the FDA does some of the things that you're suggesting, and I think they will, um, or even the existing abortion pills, um, regulations. And eventually a case goes to, gets to a court from Texas or Georgia. And the argument is the federal ban or the federal rules preempt state law on this issue. And the state argues, hold on, we don't have to reach that question because the fetus is a person and deserves equal protection under the law. And any destruction of that fetus is murder as a, as, as a constitutional matter, you're destroying the constitutional rights of the fetus. Five years ago, in the middle of the Roberts Court, one of the most conservative courts in a, in a long, maybe ever, long time in American history, no, everybody would have said the court would never hold that. I'm sure of that. I, if I would asked any con law expert five years ago, will the court hold that states aren't allowed, or the federal government, aren't allowed to protect abortion even if they want to? Because, nah, that's never going to happen. Do you see a scenario where these five Fox News justices, I don't think Roberts would do it, um, would find that the fetus actually is a constitutional person whose rights cannot be taken away um, by the federal or state governments through abortion? Is that something that could happen?
1: I think it is more on the wall now than it was five years ago, like you were just saying, more, you know, the the Overton window, the on the wall, off the wall has moved (laughs) so that it is um, more possible now um i think i don't know if we have the justices yet to get there um i think justices thomas alito would definitely agree with that um so maybe embarrassing. Gorsuch so and embarrassing. Embarrassing. yeah the kavanaugh concurrence and his statements and oral argument about how we have to be neutral on this issue that some people believe one thing others believe another the court has to be vigorously neutral I think that's hogwash. I think that he was just, you know, doing sort of like a, a ninth graders understanding of neutrality in the Supreme Court. But that being said, he seems all in on that point. His concurrence was all about that. Um, I don't think he would agree with that principle at this point in time. Now he could change his mind. He could say, you know, what he could wiggle his way out of it. I don't think we're there yet, but I think we're much closer now than we were five, you know, five years ago.
0: Two final comments on that. Um... Mary Ziegler at Florida State, who's one of the leading abortion scholars in the country, yeah. <clears throat> she's been saying for a long time that is the end game for the for the anti-choice yeah, yeah. movement. So I do think that argument is going. Let's be clear, that argument is going to be made. Do Se- you agree with that?
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Second, it's my considered view of the relationship between the Supreme Court and the American people that if the Supreme Court did that, that would be the final straw. New York and California would say, no, we're not abiding by this. Send in the marshals if you want to. But and and I think and I think the American people would the Supreme Court's popularity is down to its lowest ebb ever, I think, today. But that would put the nail in the coffin, which suggests the court won't do it because they're smarter than that.
1: Yeah, I don't know how many justices care about that. Um, I think Chief Justice Roberts cares about that. I don't know about the others, but I think you're right. It would be. And I think, it, I think we're going to see in two weeks, um, we're, we're recording this on Wednesday the 20th. On um, Tuesday the 2nd, I believe, of August, we are going to see the first popular test of Dobbs because Kansas has a referendum on its primary ballot to uh, say that there's no right to abortion in the Kansas Constitution. The Kansas Supreme Court had said there was one three years ago, so the people could overturn that. Um, And that is a conservative state, although with a Democratic governor. And so it's going to be our first popular referendum test of Dobbs. And we're going to get a good sense of how this plays with the people in that vote in less than two weeks. And I think that could, I'm kind of optimistic about that vote, even though it's a Kansas primary, right? And that could tell us a lot about how this decision is landing with the people. And maybe if enough referendums like this happen, and there's one in Michigan happening, uh, this ballot in Kentucky uh, in November, um, maybe enough justices on the Supreme Court would see that they're really out of step with what people want.
0: Well, I'm often called Dr. Doom and Gloom by people who follow me. Um, I, I agree with you. I'm optimistic about those referenda. I think the American people are much more pro-choice than the right-wing movement that has led to the abolition of Roe and Casey, as well as all these laws. Um, so let's let's leave it on a high note. There's a lot of <laughs> doom and gloom in the air, um, but I, I hope that referendum comes out the way you and I both want it to come out. Um, and even, even if it's close, I think, Kansas being yep. a, a conservative state could be a great battleground. David, thank you so much for being here. I think you've really educated a lot of, even the, the most sophisticated of my audience um, on, on these issues. Um, and and for those people who, follow, who care about abortion, but don't follow the legal intricacies as carefully as you do, um, I also, again, want to thank you for your service for your entire career. As I said earlier, there is no one who fights for women's rights and women's equality more than you do. And I deeply respect that. Thank you for being thank
1: here. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on and talking about these issues.
0: Thanks, David.